Good morning, good morning. Back in the day, they used to have testimony meetings. Share a testimony. We had a, a, a missions, uh, excuse me, a unity testimony today, but often in, 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 in old school churches, I call them, there would be these testimony times, and folk would, you might have someone stand up and say something like, I, I am saved and satisfied. You ever heard that before? I'm saved and satisfied. Saved by the blood of Jesus. Satisfied that he has lived up to the promises of life and joy and peace and blessing. They would, in essence, be saying that Christianity is working for them because Jesus keeps his promises. Nowadays, we don't hear a lot of those kind of testimonies. We have folks who want to keep it real, keep it 100, as they say now. We seldom see, see many folk talking about being saved and satisfied. We now see folk talking about how bad things are, how tough life is, how disappointed they are with life, how they go through life with unfulfilled dreams and disappointments with their situation in life, disappointed with people, if they're brutally honest, disappointed with themselves, and if they're even more honest, disappointed with God. In fact, it sometimes seems that true maturity and godliness in the church of Jesus Christ is talking about how much Jesus don't work for you. It's quite ironic. Because life is tough, isn't it? There are many disappointments, many hits, many surprises that come to you that we have to embrace and, and deal with and process. And so I want to talk about a, just a simple question today in my title. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? In your heart, in your mind, in your life, is Jesus Christ enough? question in mind, with that in mind, let's look at the text. The text is, is Matthew 13, verses 44 to 52. We've been in the series in the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the King of the Kingdom, and, and we're looking at chapter 13, and I'm just look, focusing on the verses towards the end of this chapter. Matthew 13, 44 to 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that it was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. God's word. The simple point today is that nothing in life or in eternity is more important than knowing Christ. Nothing in life or in eternity is more important than knowing Jesus Christ. And this series, we're talking about the king and the kingdom. The Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus Christ, the promised king. 
He comes in to usher the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so he didn't, Jews didn't use the word God very flippantly. So he, Matthew says kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. But it's the same thing in all the Gospels. To convince, he wants to convince everybody, Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he wants to strengthen believers to be a radical community of the king in our, in our world with our calling to make disciples of all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem but going to the end of the world. That's, and so for 28 chapters, Matthew unlocks for us, and we're, we've been in chapter 13, and we have done certain portions of this book. Kingdom of heaven is the present and the future idea of this authoritative, gracious presence of King Jesus among his people and in, in the world. Christ, Christianity is believing in following, trusting, submitting one's heart to Jesus as your king and your Lord and your master. That's what Christianity really is. His authority in our lives is challenged daily, isn't it, as we are drawn away to other idols, to other loves, to other pseudo-gods. And so the question we face every day is, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? We're going to look at this passage in an interesting way. We're going to, look at, we're going to flip it. We're going to look at it backwards. I'm going to look at first um, the, the verses 51 and 52, the idea that in the kingdom of heaven, there's a, there's, a, there's a synthesis, a biblical synthesis that's given by the messengers of the king. We'll look at that in a second. Secondly, I'm going to look at the, the, the fact that there's an ultimate separation by, by the angels of the king. And thirdly, that, that there's a, 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 a sacrificial single-mindedness, a single focus by the disciples of the king. First, the verses 51 and 52, in the kingdom of heaven, there's a, there's a synthesis, a biblical synthesis, bringing several ideas together by the king's messengers, messenger of the king. And at verse 51, have you understood all these things, they said to him? Yes, what are these things? Well, he's reviewing the whole chapter, all the things that he's been talking about. Let's, let's take a glance quickly at the chapter. The chapter is about understanding truth, understanding the truths of the kingdom. Jesus uses parables. He, he begins to use parables in this chapter 13 of Matthew. Uh, he, he also explains the rationale for using parables. He says it's a technique that is used both for revealing and concealing the truth. Those with ears to hear get the meaning. But those who don't have ears to hear, they don't get the meaning. It's just a nice, simple story. They don't get the point. They don't, they don't make the spiritual connection to what Jesus is saying. So in that sense, he's, he's consoling. There are several truths in this, passage, in, in this chapter that he's been saying about parables so far. Again, these are parables of the kingdom. These are disciples, Jewish disciples of Jesus the king who have wrong notions of what that kingdom's all about. They think Jesus is coming and is going to begin a revolution right there, a political revolution, a political takeover. Right there. And Jesus is using parables to explain that's not the way this kingdom works. That's not the way this kingdom is going to be launched. And these parables, be, his, his way of beginning to explain that. There's the parable of the sower or the soils, whichever title you use. There, the, the point there is that the, the word of God, with the seed which is sown, is going to have various responses as people hear it, as hearts respond to the word of God. And they, as those who would be spokesmen, spokespeople for this, this king, need to understand that. There's going to be various responses to the word that they would be preaching. And then there, there's a, the, the, he explains, he gives that parable, he also explains it, but, but he also talks there about why he uses parables. 
There's that interlude that I talked about. His technique. Again, the disciples shouldn't think that their words, that they're going to instantly in that generation win the world. That's not going to happen. Then there's the parable of the wheat and the, and the weeds. The wheat and the weeds. And they both grow up together. And they, all, they look alike. They look very similar. Trying to root out the weeds, you would destroy the wheat. So let them grow together. At the harvest, at the end, the separation, the sorting will, will finally take place. And the point for them as they hear this is don't expect a pure church till that sorting takes, takes place. Don't expect a pure church until that sorting occurs at the end. Then there's a parable of the mustard seed that one starts small and grows, and then the leaven that starts in, 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 the, in the dough and expands. And the point is that the kingdom will expand from a small move, small beginnings to become a massive movement in history, an influential movement in history. Jesus is preparing his apostles, disciples, to become ambassadors of the kingdom. Why is this important for us? Well, are we not similarly called to, to be kingdom ambassadors to our world? Not as apostles, but as those who love Jesus and want the world to know and be committed to him. When we talk to people about Jesus, we should imitate the style of Jesus. Something of his style and technique should be part of, of our conversation. What can we learn about him through this chapter? There's, there's a couple things in terms of style and technique. First is he used a lot of common illustrations, right? He didn't give them a lot of Old Testament. He, he spoke in parables. He used, used common illustrations of their day. He used a lot of repetition. A lot of repetition. A lot of repetition. <laughs> he repeats things over and over again. The things that are important. In, in, early in, in, in the Wheat and Terrace, he talks about the separation by the angels. And he comes back to that. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. He come back, comes back to that in our passage today. Sometimes Jesus uses variation in, in the meaning of his words and images. Sometimes it might mean one thing in one place, nothing in another place. If you, again, if you look at the chapter and, and, and ask yourself, what are, the, what are the seeds? Well, the seeds sown are one thing in the parable of the sower, but there's something else in the parable of the wheat, the wheat and, the, and the weeds. So there's variation in the way he uses words. And finally, Jesus uses mystery. He doesn't answer every question in detail. He leaves some things for the seeker to pursue himself or herself. Verse 52 is a very brief parable about how teachers in the kingdom are to do their theology, do their understanding of, of God. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure. What is new, what's so? What's this? What's he talking about? A little real small, one verse here. A master would, would have a treasure chest, maybe of both old treasures and new treasures in that same chest. And, and when he needed to, to, pay, to, to use them to pay something, he would pull them out and have some old ones and some new ones. You know, treasures of gold and silver, some would be a little more used or, or old. The, 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 the glistening would not be as, as bright and they're not as brilliant. But the simple truth is they, they, they both are valuable. <laughs> they both are, the, the old treasure is valuable and so is the new treasure. That's what he said. Have you ever gone to the store and you, know, you, you, you get how much you need to pay, and so you pull your wallet out or your purse or whatever where you keep your money, and, and you've got some brand-new bills that are so, you can't even separate them, they're so fresh. And then you've got some beat-up, busted, 
bills that have been through 99 people in 99 days. It is all crumbled up, half ripped. And you say, which of these should I give to the cashier? You know what? It doesn't matter. As long as you give enough money. The good, and the old and the new are all good. They're all usable. That, that's the point. Now, what, now, what's the significance of this parable? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, the challenge of the scribe, the teacher of the scriptures, is to explain how the old stuff and the new stuff, Old Testament and New Testament, fit together. The wise scribe doesn't automatically discard the old stuff and say, I only want to look at the new stuff. He doesn't just look at the new stuff, the New Testament, and say, I don't, I don't want to look at what's in the old. No, you bring, you bring both together because they're both usable. All of Scripture, the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels explain, share the story of Jesus. The New Testament looks back to explain the significance of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, told the Old Testament, told the um, Old Testament scholars, the Pharisees, he said, you, you, you think that you understand the Scriptures, but you don't because they point to me, and you're rejecting me. See, the old, it all points to Jesus. He said it earlier in Matthew, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Communicators of the king's message embrace both the old and the new. That's my point. The biblical scribe assumes that everything that's contemporary and new is automatically better than that which is traditional and old. No. The wise biblical teacher analyzes all things through the prism of Scripture and applies God's unchanging truth to a changing world. We synthesize the old and the new so the final product is God's word, relevant for our time. And we've done that. We are again faced with that simple question, is Jesus enough? <laughs> because it points to him. Even when the world around us thinks we're mad, is Jesus enough? When the world around us thinks we're ignorant by what we might, conclusions we come to, is Jesus enough? When the world thinks our conclusions about God are a little too narrow, a little too uh, exclusive, is Jesus enough? Is his word enough? Is his will enough? Is a cross enough? See, the connecting point with the new and the old is Jesus Christ. The parable of the sower, Jesus talked about farmers and farming and the various results the seed would produce. And it would be easy for us in our urban, non-agricultural world to simply say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I don't understand farming. But they understand eating, don't you? No, we seek to understand the world of Scripture, the meaning of the story, and how that story applies to our day. That's what the good scribe, the good teacher does. For example... Clearly, in our world day, we see the seed, which is the word, the scripture, going forth, sinking down into the various soils, people's hearts, and people either believing or being deceived by the evil one, Satan, or being distracted by the cares of life. And we see others who, despite the obstacles, embrace the gospel and grow into fruitful Christian maturity. Just one example, the new and the old. Are you giving yourself to the word, to the word of God? Are you pushing through despite the cares of life, despite the, 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 the satanic voices that say quit? Are you finding that it all begins and it all ends with Jesus? The second thing as we work our way backwards in the passage, verses 47 to 50. 
The kingdom of heaven, there, there is an ultimate separation by the angels, the king's angels. Here we have the parable of the net, the drag net. Jesus had fishermen, of course, among the apostles, and he told them they'd be, that they would be fishers of men. They were going to catch men. And I don't think a, a line and a hook and a worm was what he was talking about. No. They, they, in that day, they had drag nets the fish, the, for the fishing trade to have abundance of produce. They had uh, uh, on the boats, they would have these huge nets where they would take in many fish, and some would be good fish, some would be dead fish, some would be weeds, some would be all kinds of animals. But if you're looking for the good fish, you had to, once you got it out of the net, you had to sit there and sort it. Some would go into the container for, to go to the market so you could, so you could make your sustenance, your, your, your income. Some you might pull aside and, and eat, I don't know. But there was a sorting process. Jesus uses that simple uh, illustration to talk about the kingdom. And again, okay, what's the meaning? Well, the dragnet points to the, the broad proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Every kind of fish is gathered. An incredible variety of people respond to the message and, and are gathered into the net. And this kingdom, you see, is about people being drawn through the proclamation of the gospel into a huge, diverse, visible community. Verses 48 and 50 you'll see that sorting takes place. The sorting at the end, Jesus tells us, points to the separation of people at the end of the age, the end of this age. Very similar to Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, the separation, or even in this chapter earlier, the wheat and the weeds, there's a separation. Another implication of this for them to understand is that this, thing, this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not going to be fully instituted right there. It'll be instituted fully at the end of this age. We're still to pray like them, your kingdom come, your will be done. One, one, one caution that this parable reminds me of, don't overinterpret parables. Don't do that. Jesus says that the fisherman sorts the fish by dividing the good fish from the bad fish. That's, that's the parable. But the angelic sorting is not, at the end of the kingdom, is not about whether people are good or bad. Don't think that's what he's saying. That would be a moralistic gospel. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, there's no one good except God. If the sorting were based on that, everyone would be in this stack, and no one would be in that stack except for one individual, the Lord Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sorting at the end, the separation at the end by the angels is based upon whether a person has recognized their lack of goodness and cast themselves upon Jesus Christ as their only hope. And so the question is, have I truly repented? Am I trusting Jesus and not my own supposed good works, the supposed good character? That's the issue. See, his goodness, his, his righteousness of Christ is given to us as we trust him and him alone. And as we have said, nothing in this life or in eternity is as important as knowing that, knowing, that, knowing Jesus and trusting your soul to him. Nothing is, no, nothing is more important than that, but that enough is enough. That alone is enough. A couple implications about this, this parable. Jesus talks about a fiery furnace again. I'm a, uh, uh, he means clearly that some people will be lost. That, that's often hard for people to hear. 
But Jesus is very clear about that. Often in the Gospels, we see a Jesus that's very inclusive in, in, in seeking to bring all people to himself because that's the call of the Gospel. The Gospel goes out broadly to all people. And, and so he's including, and we like that word. But we better also listen to passages that talk about division and, and, and exclusion. That old Negro spiritual that I love to quote, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. It's horrible grammar, but good, solid theology that we need to understand. In Matthew 7, earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the ones who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. And what is the will of our Father in heaven? To believe in the one whom he has sent. The gospel of John tells us that. So, but ultimately, sorting is God's business. He knows our hearts. He knows if we have come to the end of ourselves and trusted Jesus. He knows if we're merely playing at religion. I've been involved in, in, in my life in, in several times in, in big, massive uh, revival kind of campaigns. Uh, call them crusades or festivals, gospel festivals. Billy Graham had one in the 80s, big impact here. Um, Franklin Graham does those now. Maybe you know the name of Luis Palau from Argentina, Argentina or uh, Greg Lowry from South, Southern California. These, these, they have these festivals of crusades where huge people come to the stadiums and auditoriums to hear the gospel. These are dragnet experiences as the gospel goes broadly and people are brought in. So people hear the simple call to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, many don't like that method. Many people don't like that method anymore. They say it doesn't work. It, Back 100 years ago, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was challenged about his meetings, which were like the revivalist-type meetings that he had. And I love his response. He was challenged about the fact that there's, there's some false conversions, and it's not personal enough, and et cetera, et cetera. And D.L. Moody said, listen, I will take any day my bad evangelistic methods over your non-method. And what did he mean? We've got to get the scriptures out because people need to know Christ. Third and last, in the kingdom of heaven, there's a sacrificial single-mindedness by the disciples of the king. Verses 44 and 45. They have two parables. They both point to a, a single-mindedness, a sacrificial single-mindedness, I believe. Let me read them again. The kingdom is like, like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. First, the, the, the hidden treasure, verse 44. The background here is the ancient practice of hiding treasures in open fields. In, in those days, you couldn't go to a local bank, <laughs> get a key and go to your safe deposit box. Banks didn't do that. Uh, owners would therefore dig holes in the ground to put their stuff. And sometimes folk died. Back, you know, in a time where lots of war, a lot of, people, a lot of people died, and their stuff was in the ground for a long, long time. In this parable, Jesus tells of a man maybe plowing his field or maybe passing by, but he, the field isn't owned by him, but there he finds, he stumbles across some buried treasure in that field. What does the man do? He's so excited, he sells all he has, liquidates all his assets, assets to purchase the piece of land. That Jesus is not teaching here about business ethics, because he probably should have told that, that owner, you know what you got in your land? He didn't do that. But that's not the lesson about business ethics. 
It's not, it's not a lesson about how to be saved. You need money to be saved. That's not, no, it's not there. No, no, no. It's a message about what you do and what happens when you find that treasure. That's what it's about. Uh, Matthew Henry says, Jesus Christ is the true treasure. In him there is an abundance of all that is rich and useful and will be a portion for, for all of us. All fullness, treasure of wisdom and knowledge, of righteousness, grace, and peace. Jesus Christ is the treasure. This man stumbles upon the most important thing in life. He recognizes it. He joyfully sacrifices all that he might have it. And the second story, the parable of these two, this couplet, is a pearl of great value. Everybody loves a bargain. <laughs> In this parable, the person, uh, the, the merchant gets a pearl, which, like the treasure, is Christ. The pearl is Christ. And he joyfully sells all he has as well so he can have it. This man is a merchant who goes into to, to, to bartering to find great um, gems, precious pearls, precious gems. And he finds that one that's so beautiful, so wonderful, that he sells all that he has for that one. Similar point, isn't it? That's the first one. The kingdom here is about, about, about being chased down so, so, by the Holy Spirit so that he joyfully, enthusiastically, sacrificially, passionately, you might pursue Christ. Uh, one commentator says, Alas, how many fail to appreciate the value of this pearl? Even when it's held up before their eyes, they cannot think it is valuable. And how many, even when avowedly searching for religious truth and comfort, will buy, even at great cost, some imitation pearl that's really worthless. These two parables are very similar, but there's very, something very important that makes them different. In this kingdom, there are sinners who have found Christ after stumbling into him by accident, and some who actively, passionately pursued him and found him. And I'm sure in this room we have many who can say, that's me, that's me, or that's me, that's me. Some find Christ by accident, and some go on a journey, and Christ finds them. Point is, it doesn't matter what your story is. The question is, where's your heart now? What's the condition of your life now? Are you pursuing him? Are you, is he your treasure now? It, 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 are you seeking to know him, to love him, to believe him? To, to, it, it's all about the person of Christ. And we have our different journeys, our different stories. Is he our treasure? Is he enough? Apostle Paul talked about being saved and unsatisfied in Philippians chapter 3. <laughs> he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I put all my religious stuff behind me and I press on, is what Paul said, that I might know him. Paul had a single focus and he sacrificed many things, all the, the, things, the, the attributes and, and, the, and the pomp and honor of being a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he might know Christ, the one who had saved him. We heard the Psalm uh, uh, David, Psalms. 27. This one thing do I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and be in, in inquire in his temple. David had a single focus to gaze on his Lord. Psalm 45 is a very interesting psalm. Psalm 45. Um, <clears throat> let me read, read a little bit of it. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Now, who is this? Who, who's, who, what's going on here? 
You know, this is classified as one of the messianic psalms. You know why? Because the psalmist is depicting the Messiah as a tender warrior. It's a love, it's a love psalm. Read Psalm 45 at one point in your life. Read it. It's a, it, it he's, he's a mighty warrior. He's a king. And he's a gentle, loving bridegroom. The psalm depicts the grace and the power, the beauty and the strength. There's something incredibly attractive to seeing the combination of beauty and strength, isn't it? There's something that draws, and the gospel does that because our king is strong and loving. He's powerful and compassionate. One of the attractions of sports in our world today is, is the spontaneous, skillful display by athletes of this incredible grace and beauty with the raw power and strength. Here's a couple examples. Um, the Olympic gymnast doing her floor exercise, grace and strength. A swimmer, Olympic swimmer in a pool, strength and, 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 and grace, beauty. A, a, a thoroughbred horse, gantly running to a triple... Isn't there, isn't there a wonderful beauty to that? You get the power, the noise of the, of the, of the hoofs. The wide receiver making an incredible acrobatic catch and then getting slammed. Grace and power. Think of tennis players blopping back and forth and then one just has, dinks it over the, the rack, over the um, middle. Grace and strength. Last night in the NBA, there was a slam dunk contest which I always like to slam, I don't have time to watch it, but <laughs> you, you know what a slam dunk shot is? It's two points. And a layup is two points. So why do they have people gather in the arena to look at slam dunks, and why do they put it on the TV for millions around the world to see? There's something about the power and the grace of a slam dunk. But there's a better power and grace available for all of us. There's a greater beauty, a greater attractiveness to a God who's all-powerful and yet full of grace and truth towards his people. He's the treasure. He's that pearl. He's the one worth selling all that you might gain him. Is Jesus enough? song, we'll close, a song that was um, written by Charles Prince Jones. I have this picture here. Um, very similar to the song we sang in the, in, the, in the adoration. It's called All I Need. My mom used to play this all the time growing up. Jesus Christ is made to me all I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea. He's all I need. Wisdom, righteousness, and power, holiness forevermore. My redemption, full and sure. He is all I need. He redeemed me when he died. All I need. All I need. I, with him, was crucified. He's all I need. Glory, glory to the Lamb. All I need, all I need. By his spirit, sealed, I am. He's all I need. We sang earlier, I need thee every hour. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Is Jesus, enough. Let's pray. Well, these parables are so full, chock full of information, 
thoughtful of, of meaning for us. I pray we would see the, 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 the focal point, the pointing to this kingdom that you have come, inaugurated, and you, you, you've worked it in our lives so that we have a passion to know you and to share you. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who, who's never made that, that, that step of saying, I want to, to follow Jesus, the king, because I understand his salvation is, is, is simple. He offers forgiveness. I don't have to do anything. I just receive it because it's been done for me by, at the cross. I pray if there's someone here who's never done that, that they would do that today. They'd go to the, the intercessor room and, and talk to somebody. I pray, Lord, for, for us who, who know that message, Lord, every day we're challenged with the hits of life. And the question is, are you enough? Are you the treasure for us? Are you the pearl? Are there other things that we have to get from you if we're to trust you? Or do we just trust you for who you are? Thank you that when we do that, you promise us life now and life everlasting. Do that for our hearts right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. Let's close with a let's close with a benediction. Stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace now forevermore. Amen.